Section 6 of Rameau's Nephew. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot. Translated by Ian C. Johnston. Section 6. Him. In fact, about these bad stories, I don't myself make any of them up. I stick to the role of peddler. They say that a few days ago, at five o'clock in the morning, people could hear a really violent noise. All the house bells were in motion. There were stifled and broken cries of a man choking. Help! Help! I'm being suffocated! I'm dying! These cries came from the apartment of my patron. People arrived. They went to help him. That fat creature of ours had lost her mind and was no longer aware of what she was doing, which sometimes happens at such moments. She kept speeding up her movements, raising herself on her two hands so that from higher up she could let fall on his casual parts her weight of two or three hundred pounds, energized with all the speed provided by furious desire. They had a lot of difficulty getting him out from under. What a devilish fantasy for a little hammer to place himself under a heavy anvil. Me. You're too naughty. Speak about something else. Since we've been talking, I've had a question on the tip of my tongue. Him. Why has it stayed there for so long? Me. I was afraid it might be indiscreet. Him. After the things I've just shown you, I don't know what secret I could conceal from you. Me. You have no doubts about how I judge your character. Him. None whatsoever. In your eyes, I'm a very abject person, very contemptible, and I'm also sometimes just the same in my own eyes, but rarely. I congratulate myself on my vices more often than I criticize myself for them. Me. That's true, but why show me all your nastiness? Him. Well, first, because you know a good deal about it already. And I saw that there's more to win than to lose by confessing the rest to you. Me. Please tell me how that works. Him. If it's important to be sublimely good at anything, it's above all necessary with being bad. People spit on a petty cheat, but they can't hold back a certain respect for a grand criminal. His courage astonishes you. His atrocity makes you tremble. In everything. People value integrity of character. Me. But this worthy integrity of character, you don't yet have it. From time to time, I find you vacillating in your principles. It's uncertain whether you hold to your nastiness from nature or from study, or if study has taken you as far as it's possible to go. Him. Well, I agree with that. But I've done my best. Haven't I had the modesty to recognize beings more perfect than myself? Haven't I spoken to you about Bourret with the most profound admiration? Bourret, in my view, is the greatest man in the world. Me. But immediately after Bourret, there's you. Him. No. Me. Then it's Palisson? Him. It's Palisson. But it's not only Palisaw. Me. 
and who could be worthy of sharing second place with him? Him. The renegade from Avignon. Me. I've never heard mention of this renegade from Avignon, but he must be a really astonishing man. Him. That he is. Me. The history of great people has always interested me. Him. That I can believe. This one used to live with a good and honest descendant of Abraham, the one who was promised he'd be father of the faithful, and they'd be as numerous as the stars. Me. He lived with a Jew? Him. With a Jew. He began by winning the Jews' sympathy, and then his goodwill, and finally his total confidence. That's how it always goes. We count so much on the effects of our kindnesses, that we rarely hide a secret from someone we've buried in our good deeds. It's impossible to have no ungrateful people when we expose men to the temptation of being ungrateful with impunity. This perceptive idea is one our Jew did not think about. So he confided to the renegade that he could not in good conscience eat pork. Now, you're going to see the advantages a creative mind can derive from this confession. A few months went by, during which our renegade strengthened the bond between them. When he thought that the Jew was totally won over and truly caught, that his attentions had completely convinced him that he didn't have a better friend in all the tribes of Israel, you have to admire the man's circumspection. He didn't hurry. He lets the pear grow ripe before he shakes the branch. Too much eagerness could have ruined his project. Usually greatness of character comes from a natural balance of several contrasting qualities. Me. Leave your reflections and go on with your story. Him. That's not possible. There are days when I have to reflect. It's a sickness which has to be left to run its course. Where was I? Me. At the well-established intimacy between the Jew and the renegade. Him. So the pear was ripe. But you're not listening to me. What are you dreaming about? Me. I'm dreaming about the unevenness of your style. Sometimes lofty, sometimes low. Him. Can the style of a vicious man be unified? He comes one night to the home of his good friend, with an agitated air, his voice broken, his face pale as death, trembling in all his limbs. What's the matter with you? We're lost. Lost? How? Lost, I'm telling you. Lost without hope. Wait a minute, until I get over my fear. Come on, pull yourself together, the Jew said to him, instead of saying... You're an incorrigible scoundrel. I don't know what you have to tell me, but you're an incorrigible scoundrel. You're pretending to be terrified. Me. And why should he have spoken to him like that? Him. Because the man was a liar and had gone too far. That's clear to me, so don't interrupt me anymore. We're lost. We're without hope. Don't you sense the affectation in the reputation of the word lost? A traitor has denounced us to the Holy Inquisition, you as a Jew, and me as a renegade, as a disgusting renegade. Observe how the traitor was not embarrassed to use the most odious expressions. It requires more courage than people think to call yourself by your proper name. You have no idea what it costs to get to that point. Me. Of course not. But what about this disgusting renegade? Him. He's a liar. But it's a really adroit lie. The Jews get scared. 
He pulls his beard. He rolls on the ground. He sees the guard at his door. He sees himself dressed in a San Benito, and his own auto da fe being prepared. My friend, my dear friend, my only friend, what do we do? What do we do? You show yourself. You affect the greatest self-confidence. Go on with your business as usual. The procedures of this tribunal are secret, but slow. You must use the delay to sell everything. I'll charter a slip, or I'll get a third party to do it. Yes, a third party, that will be better. We'll put your fortune in it, because it's mainly your fortune they want. And we'll go, you and I, to seek under another sky the liberty to serve our God, and to follow in safety the law of Abraham and our conscience. The important point in these perilous circumstances we find ourselves in is not to do anything imprudent. No sooner said than done. The ship is chartered, loaded with provisions and sailors. The Jews' fortune is on board. The next day, at dawn, they're going to set sail. They can dine happily and sleep soundly. The next day, they'll escape their persecutors. During the night, the renegade gets up, steals the Jew's wallet, his purse, and his jewels, goes on board, and sails away. And do you think that's all there is to it? If so, you haven't got the point. When I was told this story, I guessed what I haven't yet told you, to test your intelligence. You've done well to be a respectable man. You wouldn't have been anything but a petty rogue. And up to this point, the renegade has been only that. A miserable wretch whom no one would want to be like. But the supreme part of his wickedness is that he had himself denounced his good friend the Israelite. The Holy Inquisition seized him when he got up and, some days later, turned him into a fine bonfire. That's how the renegade became the peaceful possessor of the fortune of this cursed descendant of those who crucified our Savior. Me. I don't know which gives me greater horror, the evil of your renegade, or your style of speaking about him. Him. That's the very thing I was telling you. The atrocity of the action takes you beyond contempt, and that's the reason why I'm so sincere. I wanted you to understand how I excel in my art, and to pull out of you the admission that I was at least original in my degradation. I wanted to give you the idea that I belonged in the line of great scoundrels, and then to shout to myself, Viva Mascarillus, Forbum Imperator. Long live Mascarillus, Emperor of the Rogues. Come, Mr. Philosopher, sing along. Viva Mascarillus, Forbum Imperator. At that point he began to sing a really extraordinary fugue. Sometimes the melody was serious and full of majesty, sometimes light and playful. At one moment he imitated the bass, at another one of the upper parts. He indicated to me with his outstretched arms and neck the places with held notes, and performed and made up on his own a song of triumph. It showed that he knew more about good music than about good habits. As for me, I didn't know if I ought to remain or run away, to laugh or grow indignant. I stayed, intending to steer the conversation onto some subject which would rid my soul of the horror filling it. I was starting to find it difficult to endure the presence of a man who talked about a horrible action, a hideous crime, like a connoisseur of painting or poetry examining the beauties of a tasteful work, or like a moralist or historian selecting and emphasizing the circumstances of a heroic action. I became gloomy in spite of myself. He noticed that and spoke to me. Him. What's the matter? Are you feeling ill? Me. A little, but it will pass. Him. You have the worried look of a man upset about some distressing idea. 
Me. That's it. After a moment of silence on his part and mine, during which we walked around whistling and singing, to get him back to his talent I said to him, What are you doing at present? Him. Nothing. Me. That's very tiring. Him. I was already stupid enough. Then I went to hear the music of Duny and other young composers, and that finished me off. Me. So you approve of this style of music? Him. No doubt. Me. You find beauty in these new melodies? Him. My God, do I find beauty in them? I'll say I do. What declamation, what truth, what expressiveness. Me. Every art of imitation has its model in nature. What's the musician's model when he writes a tune? Him. Why not tackle the issue at a higher level? What's a melody? Me. I confess to you that this question is beyond my capabilities. In that, we're all alike. In our memory, we have only words which we think we understand from our frequent use of them, and even the correct way we apply them. But in our minds, they are only vague notions. When I say the word melody, I don't have ideas any clearer than yours or those of the majority of people like you when they say reputation, blame, honor, vice, virtue, modesty, decency, shame, ridicule. Him. A melody is an imitation using the sounds of a scale, invented by art or inspired by nature, whichever you like, either with the voice or with an instrument, an imitation of the physical sounds or accents of passion. You see that, by changing some things in this definition, it would fit exactly a definition of painting, oratory, sculpture, and poetry. Now, to get to your question, what's the musician's model, or the model of a melody? It's declamation. If the model is alive and thinking, it's noise, if the model is inanimate. You must think of declamation as a line, and the melody is another line which winds along the first. The more this declamation, the basis of the melody, is strong and true, the more the melody which matches it will intersect it in a greater number of points. And the truer the melody, the more beautiful it will be. That's something our young musicians have understood really well. When one hears Je suis ou pauvre diable, one thinks one can recognize the sad cry of a miser. If he wasn't singing, he would speak to the earth in the same tones when he entrusts his gold to it, saying, O terre, raise-moi mon trésor. And that little girl who feels her heart beating, who blushes, who's confused, and who begs the gentleman to let her go, would she express herself any differently? In these works there are all sorts of characters, an infinite variety of declamations. That's sublime. I'm the one telling you this. Go on, go on, and listen to the piece where the young man who feels himself dying cries out, Mon cour s'en va. Listen to this song. Listen to the instrumental accompaniment, and then tell me what difference there is between the real actions of a man who's dying and the form of the melody. You'll see whether the line of the melody coincides completely with the line of the declamation or not. I'm not going to talk to you about this measure, which is another condition of melody. I'm confining myself to the expression, and there is nothing more obvious than the following passage which I read somewhere. 
Musicae's Seminarium Accentus. Accent is the breeding ground of melody. Judge from that just how difficult and how important it is to know how to deal with recitative well. There is no fine tune from which one cannot make a fine recitative, and no fine recitative from which an expert cannot derive a fine tune. I wouldn't want to guarantee that someone who recites well will also sing well, but I would be surprised if a person who sings well didn't know how to recite well. And you should believe everything I've said about this, because it's the truth. Me. I'd like nothing better than to believe you, if I were not held back by one small difficulty. Him. And this difficulty? Me. Well, it's this. If this music is sublime, then the music of Luli, Campra, Deshtouche, Mouret, and even, just between us, your dear uncle must be a little dull. Him. Coming close and whispering in my ear. I don't wish to be overheard, for there are plenty of people who know me around here, but their music is dull. It's not that I concern myself much about my dear uncle, if he's dear at all. He's a stone. He could look at me with my tongue hanging out a foot, and he wouldn't give me a glass of water. But he's done well with the octave, with the seventh. Tra-la-la, rum-de-tum, loo with a devilish noise. Still, those who are beginning to understand these things, and who will no longer accept this fussing about for music, will never put up with that. There should be a police order forbidding anyone, no matter what their quality or condition, from having Pergolesi's Stabat sung. This Stabat should have been burned by the public hangman. My God, these damned Buffon, Italian writers of light opera, with their servant maitresse and their tracolo, have given us a real kick in the ass. Previously, a Tancred, an Issei, a Europogalante, Leende, Castor, and the Talalerique ran for four, five, or six months. Performances of Armide went on forever. Nowadays they fall down around each other, like a house of cards, and Rebel and Francourt throw fuel on the flames, saying everything is lost, they're ruined. If people tolerate any longer this singing rabble from the circus, our national music will go to the devil, and the Royal Academy and the cul-de-sac will have to close up shop. There's some truth in that. The old Whigs who have been coming there for thirty or forty years every Friday, instead of enjoying themselves the way they used to in the past, are getting bored and yawning, without knowing why. They ask themselves the question but have no idea how to answer. Why don't they ask me? Duny's prediction will come true. And the way things are going, I'll eat my hat if, in four or five years after Les Pantres Amaru de Son Modèle, there's a cat left to kick in the celebrated impasse. Those good people, they've turned their backs on their own symphonies to play Italian symphonies. They thought they could train their ears for these without having any effect on their own vocal music. As if, except for the greater freedom afforded by the reach of the instrument and the mobility of the fingers, the symphony was not related to singing as singing is to real declamation. As if the violin were not the mimic of the singer, who one day will become the imitator of the violin, when what's difficult takes the place of what's beautiful. The first musician who played Locatelli was the apostle of the new music. That's so typical. We'll get accustomed to the imitation of the accents of passion, or of natural phenomena by melody and voice, by instruments, because that's the whole extent and purpose of music. And will we retain our taste for robbery, lances, 
glories, triumphs, and victories? Go and see if they come, Jean. They imagined that they would laugh or cry at scenes from tragedy or comedy set to music, that the accents of fury, hate, jealousy, the true sorrows of love, the ironies, the jokes of the Italian or French theater could be presented to their ears, and they'd remain admirers of Ragonde and Platé. I tell you in reply, Teradiddle, boom boom. Even if they sensed, without interruption, with what ease, what flexibility, what tenderness the harmony, prosody, ellipses, and inversions of the Italian language lend themselves to art, movement, expression, turns of melody, and the measured value of sounds, they'd still remain ignorant of how their music is stiff, dead, heavy, ungainly, pedantic, and monotonous. Yes, yes, they've persuaded themselves that after having mixed their tears in with the crying of a mother who is desolated over the death of her son, after having trembled at the orders of a tyrant commanding a murder, they wouldn't be bored with their fairyland, their insipid mythology, their sugary little madrigals which display the bad taste of the poet as much as the poverty of the art which puts up with them. Such good people. It's not so, and can't be. The true, the good, and the beautiful have their rights. One may argue with them, but in the end one admires them. What doesn't bear their stamp people admire for a while, but they end up by yawning. So yawn away, gentlemen. Yawn to your heart's content. Don't be embarrassed. The gates of hell will never prevail against the imperial power of nature and my trinity. The true establishes itself gently. It's the father, and gives birth to the good, who is the son, and from him comes the beautiful, which is the Holy Ghost. The strange god sets himself up humbly on the altar beside the idol of the country. Gradually, it gets stronger. One fine day it nudges its comrade with an elbow, and bang, crash, the idol is on the floor. They say that's how the Jesuits planted Christianity in China and India. And these Jansenists can say whatever they please, but the political method which marches towards its goal quietly, without bloodshed, without martyrs, without a single tuft of hair being cut off, seems to me the best. Me. There's some reason in everything you've just said. Him. Reason. So much the better. The devil take me if I've been trying to be reasonable. It just comes out somehow or other. It's like the musicians at the impasse when my uncle appeared. If I speak well, it's because a boy from a coal mine will always speak better of his trade than an entire academy and all the duhamels of this world. And then there he goes, walking around, humming some tunes from Ile des Fous, Pientre à Marou de son modèle, Maréchal Ferrand, and Play Douce. From time to time he lifted his hand and eyes to the sky and cried out, Isn't that beautiful, by God? Isn't it beautiful? How could anyone have a pair of ears on his head and even raise such a question? He began to get worked up and to sing very softly. As he grew even more impassioned, he raised his voice, and then there followed gestures, facial grimaces, and bodily contortions. I say, all right, there he is, off his head, getting some new scene ready. Then, in fact, he set off with a loud shout. I am a poor wretch. Monseigneur, Monseigneur, let me go. O earth, take my gold. Keep my treasure safe. My soul, my soul, my life. O earth, there it is, my little friend. There's my little friend. Espitare e non venere. Azurbina penserete. 
Sempre in contrasti con te sista. He crammed together and jumbled up together thirty songs, Italian, French, tragic, comic, in all sorts of different styles. Sometimes in a bass voice he went down, all the way to hell, and sometimes he'd feign a falsetto and sing at the top of his voice, tearing into the high points of some songs, imitating the walk, deportment, gestures of the different singing characters, by turns furious, soft, imperious, sniggering. At one point he's a young girl, crying, portraying all her mannerisms. At another point he's a priest, he's a king, he's a tyrant. He threatens, commands, loses his temper. He's a slave, he obeys. He calms down, he laments, he complains, he laughs, never straying from the tone, rhythm, or sense of the words, or the character of the song. End of section 6